Well, I sure am glad you're here. For those of you who perhaps don't know me in the last few weeks, I haven't preached. I did give announcements once or so, but uh, my name is David Wilson. I am the uh, pastor of care and discipleship at Coastal in general, and specifically the campus pastor here at Gloucester. And uh, we are super excited about what God is doing here, not just because we're packed in here pretty much every week and maybe increasingly so, but we're just really happy to see uh, what God is doing and undertaking here in this place. We're having uh, people come, visitors come, folks that are just uh, in some cases have not been much part of a church in recent years, and we're so happy to have all of you here. I really, uh, I really want you to know that. Uh, it wasn't too many months ago, uh, probably some of you were watching the Olympics, and uh, I don't know, I'm not much of a winter sports kind of guy, so I don't know anything about most of those sports. But I do know this, there is similar attention in most all of them given to the outfits they wear, right? They have specific materials, they, have, they fit in just a certain way, they're, they're made to keep you just warm enough but not too warm and breathable and all this stuff that they do and their, their headgear, if they wear a helmet or their goggles or the boots they have on, whatever it is that they're wearing is meticulously designed not just to look cool but to be effective in helping them shave off even a tenth or a hundredth of a second off of their time as they're racing down the mountain or around the ice track or whatever it is that they're doing, they, they give incredible attention to the specific uniform that they're wearing because they recognize that even that helps them prepare for the race that they're about to be in. I was thinking of that the other day in relationship to our spiritual warfare. If, if athletes take that much time and attention and precision to, to think about what it is that they're going to wear in a race that gives them that really cool medal, but even if they don't win, I mean, it's... It's pretty rare to find somebody interviewed afterwards that didn't win that doesn't say, you know what, I'm just thrilled I got this far and got to participate at this level because it's all so close. When you gotta time it down to a hundredth of a second and what they wear is important. As you know, if you've been here in the last couple of weeks, we are involved in a study called spiritual warfare. We've been looking at the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6, and today we're going to start into some specific discussion about particular aspects of the armor of God. What is it? What does it mean? What, of what value is it to pay attention to this? Okay? So three things this week. This is kind of an easy sermon to outline. I'm in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Three things, three pieces, if you will, of the armor that are important for us to have, to have in place, to be ready. The first of them is the belt, the belt of truth. I have a different sort of belt here that I was just using yesterday 
And I'm suffering for it, I gotta tell you. I, I did this for a few years as a living, and uh, it didn't hurt near as much as it did yesterday when I did it for six hours. And I found the belt fit a little differently yesterday too. <laughs> not entirely sure what that was about. But I wore this thing all day yesterday, not just because it makes you look like a carpenter if you're wearing a belt like this, but because when I put this thing on, it's got all my tools right handy. I got my, my hammer and my tape measure and my knife and my glue and pretty much anything I might need right on a moment's notice is in that pouch and little things to carry nails in so I can drop them out and step on them later and all of that fun stuff. It's, it is a, a tool belt and it goes around the middle and it just kind of helps kind of hold things in a little bit too. Uh, if you remember some of the older versions, older translations of the scripture referred to this Piece of armor is what? Those of you who've been around a while. The what of truth? The girdle of truth. That is a real picture, right? Uh, I know those things aren't as uh, familiar today as they used to be, but they kind of worked to hold everything in too, as I recall. And uh, the belt of truth was the central piece of armor. Here's why it was so important. The, the, the soldier would have a linen garment that he would start with, that would go underneath of everything. And then the first thing that went on was the belt. And the belt was designed to be there so that if you had to run, for example, you could take this linen garment. I mean, we're not familiar with that because for the most part, we don't wear garments that just kind of hang and flow freely. But if you had to run or work, you grabbed your garment and you tucked it into your belt. Let me give you a couple of verses. Exodus 12, verse 11. When, when the children of Israel were getting ready to leave Egypt, being rescued from bondage for 400 plus years, God said this to them, you shall eat the Passover with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Why? Because they were to be ready to go. God was going to do something amazing. He was going to send them out of Egypt with the spoils of Egypt, and they were going to be rescued from bondage. They needed to be ready, so they had to have their belt on so they could tuck that garment in and so they could move quickly and be ready to be on their way out the door. Luke chapter 12 says, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, be like men who are waiting. This picture of the belt is something that is always talking about preparedness. I gotta be ready. And in the context of this spiritual warfare conversation that we're having, it means I've got to be ready at all times to engage the enemy. There are things coming, there are there are occasions coming that are going to require me to be prepared. And if I wait until those troubles or those difficulties or those stresses come, it's too late to get prepared. i got to be prepared before they come. And the belt of truth is what needs that to happen. So what is the belt of truth? Let me give you a couple of thoughts about that from Scripture. The first is, find, uh, find, well, I might, might have this one on the screen. Psalm 86. Is that there? Uh, maybe not. I'll read it to you anyway. But you, O oh Lord, there it is, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The first thing that I think the belt of truth refers to is 
this, God and his faithful love. These are divine realities. I think there are three of them that are related to this belt of truth. God and his faithful love. Part of the spiritual warfare you will face is going to simply be things that are difficulties of life, things that you face that aren't onslaughts of anybody other than life can be really, really difficult. You're going to face medical hardship, financial hardship, whatever it may be. And if you haven't got securely in your heart, fixed around the center of your being, if you will, the the faithfulness and love of God, you will be shaken when those times come. One writer said it this way, dependable divine reality, which has in fact come to men in the gospel, is something which the believer can put on like the protective apron of the soldier. Knowing that God is dependable even when life is hard is a a foundational aspect of your life. It's a truth that you have got to get settled into you. It's vitally important as I face the ups and downs, the, the tragedies, and even the triumphs of life. God is faithful. Secondly, the person and work of Jesus Christ is a truth you need to settle and establish firmly at the central part of your being. When the disciples were upset because Jesus had been around for a few years and he was giving them instruction about the fact that he was leaving, going away soon, and they were super frustrated. They didn't understand why this one whom they anticipated would be the one to come and free them from Roman bondage, he began to explain, I'm going away for a little while and and I'm going to come again. And Thomas, good old doubting Thomas, said, Lord, we, we, don't, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? To which Jesus responded what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, as the person who he was, the, the second person of the Trinity, is the, he's foundational to your ability to face the spiritual warfare of life. Knowing who he is and what he has accomplished on your behalf is desperately, vitally important. John 18, 37, Jesus said, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. I know there are a lot of competing arguments uh, out there about what is this and what is that regarding truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. You need to know with absolute certainty have as the central feature of your armor, if you will, the faithfulness and love of God, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and thirdly, the word of God. The word of God is not just another book. It's not just something that is put together by a bunch of men somewhere. It would require a much longer study and far more time than we have right now to explain the significance of this book. But I tell you this, this word is truth. When Jesus prayed to his heavenly father in John chapter 17, he said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. I want to give you just a little quick language lesson about how that sentence is written. There are a few places in the Bible 
where that kind of grammatical construction is there. So just kind of nerd with me for a second, okay? Um, your word is truth. It says in 1 John that God is light. It says in John chapter 1 that the word was God. There is a construction that is translated that way that doesn't mean it was a truth. Usually, if you can either have a definite article, which is like the, like, you know, that is, this is the Nate Weiss, not, some, not just the average run-of-the-mill one, right? Oh, the Nate Weiss, that one, right? It specifies a particular person. There, there are others, you know, I mean, the name David is very familiar around here. So, you know, you could say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a David. I'm one of the bunch, right? The way this is written, it's talking about the nature of something. So in, in John chapter 1, when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, it means the Word was in nature God. He wasn't just a God among many. He was God. When it says God is light, and in him is no variation or shadow of turning in 1 John. It doesn't mean God is a light among many, a God among many. He is, it is in his nature, he is light. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is in its nature truth. This book is truth. This is right. If anything disagrees with this, it's wrong. This is not a truth in a competing bunch of truths. This is not a truth that we have all sorts of systems and this is our particular truth. There is no our truth. I don't know if you like Jurassic Park. I know it's all evolutionist and all that, but I still think it's really cool. And so I like them. I was watching the second one the other day for no particular reason other than I was bored. And at the very beginning of it, there's an interesting little exchange. Because a little girl gets hurt on this island where all these dinosaurs are now roaming free doing their thing. And she gets hurt badly. And so it becomes a problem for the company, InGen, and all these dinosaurs they've made. And so they take the authority away from the, the older guy that was in charge. I can't remember his name. But anyway, his son takes over. He's in charge. And they had... From the first movie, you had Dr. Malcolm, the weird mathematician dude, and a couple other people, and they had signed a contract that said, you're not going to disclose anything that happened on the island. Well, it was so bad, he did. Dr. Malcolm told people what happened. And uh, at the beginning of this second movie, he's having this interchange with this new CEO of the company, who says, you were told you weren't allowed to tell what happened on that island. He said, people died, I was telling the truth. And the CEO looks at him and says, you were telling your version of the truth, to which Dr. Malcolm says, there are no versions of the truth. I'm like, say an amen, preach it, brother, while I'm watching Jurassic Park. There are no versions of the truth. Your word is truth. You can count on this to be true. That's got to be settled centrally in your being. Okay, so we need the belt of truth, the faithfulness and the love of God, the person and work of Jesus and the word of God, divine realities that you have to have settled in your heart before the warfare starts, okay? Second one, the breastplate of righteousness. I didn't have one of those to bring along. I was gonna, you know, that would have been fun to show you 
one of those, you know, it's either a big thick piece of leather with some bone on it, and, or if but you can picture it, any medieval movie you've seen, you know, with the chain mail or whatever it is, there was a, a piece of the armor that was designed to protect the vital organs. It was there intended to, to make sure that you didn't die if you got hit by a, a sword or an arrow or a rock or whatever it was that was coming at you. It protected that which was vital. The breastplate of righteousness accomplishes the same thing. It makes sure that you stay safe. And I think there are two aspects of this. Pastor Sean has very wisely emphasized that the armor is Christ. If you are in Christ, you have the armor of God. And we talked about that under the truth. He is the truth. And there is a sense in which when you are in Christ, you, you have righteousness. That's our standing before God. We have, we have righteousness so that when God looks at me, as astonishing as this is to me, God sees me as completely righteous. Not as a sinful person, he sees me as perfectly righteous. It's the only way he can let me into heaven. That's because I'm in Christ. I've trusted Christ as my only hope of salvation. So when I have been redeemed, when I am in Christ, I have, I have a righteous standing before God. Let me go read for you a little bit from Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of God th through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Did you ever wonder why in the Old Testament all these awful things happened and people did terrible things and all these nations that dishonored God and God didn't just wipe them out? This explains it, right? It's because God was waiting for the day that Jesus would come and provide redemption and salvation and pay the penalty for, for sin. That's why God doesn't just immediately wipe people out when they sin. He gives them opportunity to respond. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, one who has faith in Jesus. Our standing in God is a matter of a transaction that takes place. When I recognize that I'm a sinner and therefore I am separated from God and can't go to heaven, and when I recognize that Jesus came to this earth, he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for my sin, he came back to life again, having lived a sinless, perfect life. He did that for me. When I acknowledge that, ask God to forgive me of my sins and make me his child based on who Jesus was, the person and work of Christ, I am, I am put in Christ. I'm declared to be righteous by God. It's really an incredible thing. That's my standing before God. Jesus became for us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's really powerful stuff. That's the righteousness you have as your standing. But we are told in this passage in Ephesians to put on the breastplate of righteousness, right? So I think there is a sense in which this has to do with our practical obedience as well. I cannot profess faith in Christ and then just go off and kind of hang loose and do whatever comes uh, to mind or to my heart. 
and anticipate that I'll be ready to face spiritual warfare. I can't do that. Ephesians chapter 4. Interesting little passage of scripture. I like mostly how it ends because it, it fits into what we're talking about. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 uh, says that you are to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Our desire, our practice of righteousness, our, our willingness to put off that which is in our past, in our history, and to, to put on the righteousness of Christ practically in our daily life is part of the experience of developing in what the Bible calls sanctification, making me more like Jesus, making me more holy. And as I grow in that discipline of becoming righteous in my daily life, there are certain habits and practices that just simply better prepare me for what's to come. Because I mean, it's not, a, it's not a surprise to anybody, right, that there are trials and difficulties that will come in life. I mean, nobody is exempted from that, whether it's because of other people or physical things or financial things or whatever, natural disaster. There are, there are things that will face us, and particularly the spiritual warfare we face, that if I'm just kind of doing my own thing and ignoring the basic patterns of biblical behavior, I mean... Be involved in worship. Be in the scriptures on a regular basis. Be involved in community with other Christians. There are certain patterns of behavior that help me develop in practical righteousness. Those habits affect my readiness for battle. So we have to have on the breastplate of righteousness. And then the last part of Ephesians 6 for our study here is these shoes for our shoes, we are to put on the, the preparation of the gospel of peace. You need the right shoes, right? Yesterday, I went to step up on the roof of the shed. And because uh, we, we built this big old shed and we were putting the roof up there and getting ready to nail down the, the uh, wood on the roof. And I took one step up there and my foot slipped out from under me. I climbed back down off the ladder. I said, there are three other people here. One of you can do that. <laughs> um, whether it's because I didn't have the right shoes or not, they weren't sticking. They weren't holding me up there the way I wanted them to. And I wasn't going to take a chance because I didn't want to miss out on preaching. So uh, the shoes are your stability. And for the soldier, it was, you know, we didn't have boots like we can buy now or get issued to us when we enter the military, they were just shoes, but they were embedded with pieces of stone or pieces of bone or steel or, or metal of some sort, I should say, that when they got to rocky terrain, when they got to ground that was unstable, it affected their stability. Because all through this series, right, our first two weeks, we've been emphasizing this is for us to stand firm. This is for us to stand strong. So these shoes have to do with the preparation of the good news of the gospel of peace. 
Preparation has to do with our mindset. I'm convinced of that. I think that it is, it is unreasonable for us not to be aware of what we're facing as we go into battle. For us not to be aware of how the devil functions and the, the things that he's going to strike us with. You know, some of those things are going to vary from person to person, right? There are some things that I struggle with that you won't struggle with. You'd look at me and say, I don't get it. Why is that a struggle for you? But I might say the same thing about your struggle. The point is, I'm in spiritual warfare, and I've got to be aware. My mind has to be prepared. And the primary where I'm prepared, the way that I'm prepared is to get the good news of the gospel settled in my thinking. What happens with the gospel? Find your way to Romans 5. This is, again... I could preach a long time from Romans 5 too, but I won't. But I want to say this. John MacArthur said this much. As it relates to the battle against the principalities and powers allied with Satan, the good news is we stand in the confidence of God's love for us, his union with us, his commitment to fight for us. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Let me drop down to verse 6 and read a little. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. If you're a, a follower of Christ already, I know you've heard at some point in your past that you had been an enemy of God. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, I've got really bad news for you today. You are an enemy of God. And I've had people say, I'm not an enemy of God. I have nothing against God. God has something against you, though. You are an enemy of God. The good news of the gospel, that's not the gospel. That's the bad news, is you're an enemy. The good news of the gospel is Jesus died on the cross, paid the penalty for your sin. If you'll trust him as your only hope of salvation, you go from enemy to friend. In an instant of time. I know, I was really bored when I thought of that too, but I mean, we could respond a little bit positively now and then, right? I am no longer an enemy. That's the good news of the gospel of peace. When we stand in the Lord's power, we need not fear any enemy, even Satan himself. When he comes to attack us, our feet are rooted firmly on the solid ground of the gospel of peace through which God has changed from being our enemy to our defender. What an incredible thing. Your feet shod, you have the shoes on that are the gospel of peace. They have prepared you. I read a passage of scripture this week as I was preparing for this message that really struck me and I was going to try and just talk you through it a little bit and give you the, the summary, but I'm going to read it for you. It's from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I'm going to finish up in verse 15, but I'm going to read the whole thing. The, the Israelites are in the land, and there, have, there were a few groups of people that God 
had permitted them not to completely wipe out. Uh, walk past these people as you're going into the land because they were kind on this occasion and we're going to let them be for the time being. And after a period of time, this, this group decided they didn't like the fact that the Israelites were making such good progress in their establishment in the land of Canaan. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in what is now En Gedi. <laughs> then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is, with, is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He, just, he continues to pray, seeking the face of God, rehearsing the history of God's working on their behalf. Verse 11, we, we, you would not let us invade these people. Verse 11, now behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you've given to us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that's coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Have you felt like that? I don't mean because an army's coming against you, but you just feel like you are, you're, you're just about to go under, right? I don't know if I can take anymore. I had someone on the phone just this week ask to, can, can we sit down and talk? I just, this has happened, this has happened, this, I'm just not sure I can take anymore. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, and they give his lineage a little bit. In verse 15, he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. We've been hearing that for two weeks, right? Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites of the Kor and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they arose early in the morning went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. This is not your battle. 
This is God's battle. Spiritual warfare comes to all of us. We must be prepared to stand. So, a couple of thoughts for you to take with you. First is this, are you resting in the truth of God and in his word? It is increasingly common in our culture, even for those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, to say, I know it says this, but does it include this? It's the, it's the age-old question that Satan asked Adam and Eve. Did God really say I'm not really sure that God, it's like we want an exact, specific instruction from God for every possible, specific instance of our lives. This is God's truth. Are you resting in it? Are you growing in your understanding of the scriptures? Secondly, if you're in Christ, you are already righteous in your standing before God. Are you growing in your practical Righteousness That will require you, I, I promise you, it will require that you become connected to other believers. You cannot, I don't believe you can grow in practical righteousness effectively on your own as an island. That's why we are constantly pushing, get connected to a small group of people that can become part of your accountability network. Thirdly, whose side are you on? Have you received the gospel? Have you trusted in Christ as your only hope of salvation? If you have not, Listen, we have people that will be here waiting to talk to you after the service is over. We'll go find a quiet spot and we'll sit down and show you from the scriptures, from the truth of God, how you can know your sins are forgiven and you're on your way to heaven. There it is, your only hope for having a right relationship with God. I hope you're encouraged today. I hope you're encouraged as you remember this, the, the truth and the righteousness and the preparation of the gospel of peace your feet i hope you're on solid ground today because the spiritual warfare is all around us and if you're not facing it today it may be this week now's the time to be prepared right we have victory in jesus christ father thank you for your grace and for the the fact that we are we are yours by faith in christ that we have all that we need in terms of our standing before you I'm really grateful for that, Father, and I pray that uh, you would bless those who are here today, whether, whether brothers and sisters of mine in Christ or not. Lord, would you, would you challenge us and remind us of these, uh, these simple truths that are so powerful? Lord, I just ask you to, uh, to be at work in our hearts as we sing this song in closing, as we head on out to a busy week. Lord, we're heading out into the warfare, and I pray that we would be appropriately suited up, ready to face uh, what is coming our way in knowing that we have victory in Christ as our only hope. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.